This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Caridwin Dovey, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's so lovely to have you on. I've always had a curiosity about you and I don't know very much about you. So we're going to find out and we're going to explore that in this podcast today. Caridwin is a Sydney-based writer of fiction, creative nonfiction and in-depth essays and profiles. She was born in South Africa and grew up between South Africa and Australia. She went to Harvard on a scholarship as an undergraduate and did her postgraduate studies in social anthropology at New York University. Her novels include Life After Truth. Ah, that's the new one. They also include Blood Kin and Only the Animals. So uh, Life After Truth is the latest and the one that is just about to be released. Uh, So we're going to talk about that and lots of other things. It is a story about Harvard graduates who rekindle old loves and old resentments at a 15-year reunion. So I really want to know about your life because it's really incredibly interesting how it was that you came to Australia. So we first arrived in Melbourne in 1982 and I was about two years old and my sister was four. And yeah, dad was an academic in South Africa and very politically involved. And so he had actually had to leave the country. He'd had some death threats in the middle of the night and, um, you know, with a young family. So that was... they. And why did he have the death threats? He was um, teaching in an education department in Peter Maritzburg and um, he was taking on black students at a time and that was illegal. And then he was publishing pamphlets um, and distributing them illegally according to the apartheid government that were critical of the segregated education system at the time and we later discovered that there was a a government spy in that uh, department at the uni and this guy had informed on on dad and so that's when the phone calls you know started happening so yeah they thought about trying to immigrate to Canada New Zealand or Australia and I think the Australian paperwork sort of came through first and so they turned up in Melbourne. I don't think they'd ever been here before and, and um, you know, but were amazed at how welcoming the country was and, you know, we were able to have free healthcare and free schooling and mum did a PhD with a fellowship and, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing to be welcomed like that. But then we went back and forth for many years. Uh, Dad kept wanting to... And why did he go back and forth? Was it that he, that he missed his life or he... No, he was because he was so charged up politically and passionate about what was happening. I think, and he still struggles with this to this day. He now lives in Sydney as well, around the corner from me. Um, I think he just always felt like that was the place he was meant to be and he wanted to keep going back to, you know, be part of the struggle. And then the same thing would happen. And then, you know, my mum 
it was difficult, I guess, having a young family always trying to figure out what do you put first, right? Do you put politics about family or... So I think it was a difficult time. So, yeah, we moved something like five times between South Africa and Australia in about the same amount of years. So, wow, yeah, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then eventually things were starting to change in the late 80s. So then we were back for seven or eight years in a chunk. And then they had a sabbatical year in 95. So we came to Sydney for the first time. Mm. And um, then at the end of that year, they went back to their teaching jobs in South Africa and my 17-year-old sister and I, I was 15, we stayed on in a flat across the road from our high school. We went to North Sydney Girls and, uh, yeah. That is extraordinary. I think that that is extraordinary. But, you know, I think that in terms of parenting, and it doesn't seem to be like that anymore, but I often think that the success to raising children is to give them that independence. But you don't see that much anymore, do you? No. I mean, how can we ask kids to behave responsibly if we never give them responsibility? Mm. And so I, I don't know. It's gonna go, It could go either way for me with my kids. Like, you know, they're still very young. But I do think 15 does feel like a really big milestone for me. And I just wonder how... I'm going to deal with that because, you know, I remember that time living with my sister. I mean, my parents were paying the rent on the flat. It was across the road from the school, but we did all our own shopping and cooking and cleaning and, you know, on her peas, so she would drive me to, you know, piano lessons on the highway and stuff. But I remember it being a really kind of happy time. And we were very good because we were so aware of what, our parents were trusting us with, you know. So as we got a bit older and our three friends would be like, why don't you have the, a party at your flat? And we were like, why would we do that? You know, also bad behavior needs an audience. And I yeah. think so when you take that element out of it, there was no motivation for us to, you know, behave yeah. badly. Yeah. Is your sister still in Sydney? No. So she actually paved the way in terms of how I ended up going to America. So again, because we were so independent, she did her HSC here. And during that same year, she had an American friend at school who was applying to American colleges. And we had never been to America and knew nothing about what that meant or how you did it. Or And she just figured it out on her own and put in her application to Harvard. She just went for, you know, went for the top. I don't think she applied anywhere else. And then came home one day to my parents and said, guys, I've, I've got into Harvard, you know. And they were like, oh, just sorry, forget about it. There's no way we can afford that. And she's like, no, 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 here's the scholarship letter. They pay for everything, like full financial aid. So wow. off she went. And then um, two years later, I followed her there. But then she ended up in England after right. she had done her American studies. So she's in London now. Is she a writer? No, she's actually a scholar of African cinema, which is a pretty amazing wow. field. Yeah, she's actually the pioneer within that field and, yeah, runs yeah. African film festivals and does really important work. Yeah. Tell me, so you, you're growing up in Sydney, you're in a flat with your sister, and you, you do, you sound so responsible. So how is it then, is it because she went to Harvard that that was a, a kind of a, a draw card for you, if you like? Exactly. So, I mean, it was this monkey see, monkey do. And um, I was very lucky because at least she could say, okay, here's my old SATs, 
you know, textbooks mm. for the SATs. So again, during my HSC year, when I was doing trials, I was also sitting the SATs. And by this stage, I was mostly living alone because she'd gone mm. to America. My parents were still in South Africa. So my HSC year, <laughs> I was pretty much on my own. But anyway, so she gave me the books and said, this is how you apply. And you've got to do this very um, personal essay, you know, like a real outpouring of who you are and and what your story is and you know it's quite an American tradition that again for Australians it's you, you can't hold back on on the drama in this story and you've got to really go at it and so she helped me you know really craft that and then um, yeah so I was very lucky because when I turned up on campus, even though I had still never been to America, at least she had been there for two years and had kind of figured out a little bit of how the system worked and what a liberal arts education was. And, you know, she picked me up at the airport and she had oh, sheep. Makes ready. all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk to you about, so that's interesting, isn't it? Because you come from South Africa, which, you know, obviously is starkly different to Australia and the U.S., well, maybe not as starkly different to the US, but, you know, as a, a child and a teenager, what was it then that you were observing about the three different countries? Um, yeah, it's such a good question and it's something I'm still processing to this mm. day. In my early fiction, I think I was very much obsessed with processing what, it, what a white South African identity and the sort of legacy of guilt that you carry with you, how to make sense of that. But when I was then in Australia, I discovered feminism for the first time, so coming to North Sydney Girls. And I think that's why my parents saw they needed to leave us here because we just had bloomed and blossomed and, you know, were kind of feeling empowered. And then going to America, um, I found that, you know, it was a bit of a hothouse situation there, like many of the kids who'd, who were American and who'd gone into Harvard, you know, I mean, they had had like a nightmare of a time in high school trying to, you know, stuff their CVs. But actually as an international student, it was kind of easy, much easier to get in. Like I think only seven people applied from Australia that year and, you know, they need a very diverse student body. So, but what was really great and empowering was to be told in that wonderful American way um, to believe in in your own talents and to express them and to not be ashamed of that. And I think mm. it's still something I struggle with, like as mm. a woman and as someone from that more British colonial background that Australia and South Africa are much more similar, you know, compared to America where it's to be told to not apologise for, you know, doing things as a woman. Um, but I, I, I feel like, yeah, being told that as an early adult, as a young woman, um, and being freed up in a way to embrace that was was very uh, powerful. It was a powerful moment for that to happen. Uh, I think we talked about this before we started recording, but I travel to America a lot. And for those that listen to the podcast, they know that I've got friends in San Francisco. So, But uh, the difference, you know, I think, and I, I don't know about South Africa because I don't know it and I haven't been there, but I feel that with Americans that people think that we're similar um, because through television and through a lot of our entertainment comes uh, via there and our influences too as a country. Um, a lot of it is American influence these days. But they are starkly different to us. It, they are 
on so many levels culturally. The only similarity is that we speak English sort of, you know, the same language. And there's so many examples of that. But do, do you feel the same way about that country? Yeah, absolutely. So what you were saying, I, I absolutely connected with because yeah. I did feel initially, yeah, on turning up like, oh, this feels really familiar um, yeah. from that childhood exposure to American movies and things. And then by the end of nine years in the country, I was like, this is super strange. Like I, I feel like it became less and less familiar the longer I was there. And I mean, that's a great thing about it, that there are so many layers to the country. I mean, it is like the ultimate onion of a country because mm. anything you can say about it is true. And it was very interesting to have a inside view on Americans at an American college. And even though I was an international student, you know, you live in the dormitories for four years side by side, you know, you go home with them for spring breaks and Thanksgivings and, you know, winter breaks. And so you get to be doing essentially what's like a kind of ethnographic field work among people that where that's their, you know, lived reality. Mm -hmm. Very few of them ever visited me in Sydney. Actually, I don't think anyone has. So they would have no idea really who I am or what, where I've come from or what my family life is like. Whereas, you know, I had a very strong sense after four years of, of living in those very close um, situations of, of what American family life for a particular demographic, obviously, of kids who, you know, gotten to Harvard. Yeah. I'm often surprised at how little Americans travel, but I guess they see their country is it that they see that their country is self-contained in a way and that they don't need to? And, you know, obviously Americans do travel, but a lot don't. I mean, you know, and I think when George Bush became president, he didn't even have a passport and yeah. had been, you know, obviously he hadn't left the States. But culturally here, we are encouraged, I mean, and like you did, but even me, it was, you know, as soon as I finished school, the first thing I wanted to do was leave the country and go and travel and see the world. And they don't seem to, as a race, have that, that kind of curiosity? Yeah, I think perhaps it's the insularity that's come from, you know, the very strong, proud tradition of having to fight for their independence from, you know, the mother country yeah. and Britain. Yeah. You know, they actually went to war over it. And mm. so, yeah, that ultimate, like, shutting down of those channels, like, I think there's got to be something, you know, linked to that. Mm. But yeah, it's funny, though, because then you look at Australians compared to Europeans. And while we travel a lot, we speak no languages, like we, you know, we don't master second and third languages in the way that they are, are raised to. So then, you know, they look at us as like these, you know, <laughs> I agree with that. travel yeah. around, but don't learn anything because we're not, you know, actually engaging with the country. So I suppose we all have our national... And that is so true. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've got, you know, amazing kind of upbringing, right? And just so diverse on every level. When is it that you started thinking about writing or was it something that you'd always thought you were going to be? I actually was, I found an old diary that I had from when I was on the plane going over to start at, at Harvard. So I had was on the plane from Sydney, you know, with my suitcase. And in it, I had written that I wanted to be a filmmaker, a journalist and an environmentalist and a novelist. So, you know, really ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But, um, I, and I had always written, um, you know, poetry and short stories and, you know, was always... And kept a diary. I kept a diary. Um, 
and so through high school. But then I got to Harvard and, and discovered anthropology, which I had never heard of. I didn't even know what it was. I just turned up at the first class and it was like, you know, angels singing and the clouds parting. And I was like, wow, there's something where you get to just hang around and like be an outsider who's kind of also sometimes an insider and then write about what that means and how humans make meaning in their daily lives and how they connect with each other and what, you know, the boundaries of those connections and communities are. And so I went down a path of um, becoming a social anthropologist and I also studied film there. So they had this film department where you could borrow cameras for free. So every summer, American summer, I started spending back in South Africa with a camera filming on farms at the time it was late nineties and there was a lot happening in terms of empowerment, economic empowerment programs for farm workers who'd been, you know, historically abused under apartheid. So yeah, I kind of just absolutely fell in love with this way of doing things. And I thought, you know, this is it. So I didn't do any creative writing or much creative writing um, through those undergrad years. And then after college, I moved to Cape Town. I sort of thought I need to figure out, you know, as an adult for myself, if this is still a part of my identity, you know, having lost life when I was 14. And I moved to Cape Town, had a terrible time and um, couldn't work. Oh, you know, I'd never lived in Cape Town. I had no friends there. I knew no one. So yet again, I was doing this thing of starting from scratch, but all my American friends thought I was going home, but I wasn't. I was going to a country that was actually quite foreign to me by then. My parents by then had moved to Sydney. They'd gotten jobs here at UTS. And so it was just really, and, and the, as soon as I got there, I was like, wow, I do not, this is not my place anymore. You know, um, I couldn't find work. I had a real crisis of confidence in terms of, being a well-meaning white girl with a camera and, you know, I had been his filming these farm communities and sort of living among them. So doing, you know, real proper field work, but that had started to feel a little bit uh, like the power dynamics were not quite right. And so it was actually during this time of being very depressed and very uncertain about what I was doing that I began to write Bloodkin, which ended up being my first novel. But I remember feeling ashamed when I first started writing it because I didn't tell anyone. I felt like I was failing at this other thing that I was meant to be doing. And so, but I just had this desire to express myself and, you know, the creativity somehow. And so in another way, it was a lifeline to just be able to go into this place where it didn't depend on other people. And it was just me and the words and, and it, you know, I set it in an unnamed country with a president's barber, chef and portraitist who are imprisoned after a coup. So I wasn't writing about South Africa. I didn't have to worry about representation on the page. And, you know, using that sort of structure of a fable gave me freedom, I think, to say something at a time when whenever I picked up the camera, I just was like, I don't know who I am or what right I have to be mm. saying anything about this place. Were you still in Cape Town when you started writing that? I was. So that whole novel was, was written there. And, oh, um, wow. Okay. 
I mean, it, the, the only reason I got published as well that first time was that the South African publishing industry in English is very tiny because it's only a small proportion of people who actually, that's their first language. There's 14 different national languages. And um, so I just, I'd written the novel and I hadn't really told anyone, didn't know what to do with it. Looked at Penguin South Africa number in the phone book, like in the old days of phone books, mm-hmm. and called the Johannesburg office and was like, hello, I wrote a novel. Would you like to read it? <laughs> Love that. I never had answered the phone. And said, okay, here's our address. Please do send it. And I mean, you know, oh, just so naive. And so I sent yeah. it off and by some miracle an editor there, you know, wanted to publish it. And that's how it sort of began. But then for a long time afterwards, I felt very illegitimate, like, that I hadn't set out to write a novel. I hadn't even known what I was really doing. It was, again, just this sense of desperate need to survive and that experience and the way I was going to survive it was through. Do you think your confusion about identity comes from the fact that you grew up in three different places? Do you think that that's where it stems from? I think it was that. I think it was, um, you know, I came of age right when the whole country came of age. So I had the parts where we were back in South Africa, you know, we were living in apartheid South Africa and then right at the age of 14 when, you know, you start to have a consciousness of the world around you, the country changed and so making sense of that and then my new role in it. But then I think also it's because my mum at the time was studying post-colonial English literature and so I had from her picked up all this anxiety around voice right and who has the right to write and who and that conversation is still going and of course and it should be I mean we can never get to the bottom of this stuff but I think from her I was aware and I think that's why I felt a bit embarrassed about writing a novel at that time and why the fable form was the only one in which I could say something because I was so hyper aware, like, who am I Mm. writing something, you know, from this perspective, from this body, from this voice. Mm. Yeah. It's really, I feel like writing that novel. It was at a time of depression, you know, we often think of the mental health benefits of, um, of reading fiction. And that's something that you and I know, you know, any, any reader knows that you can't live without it. But actually, I learned through that experience that there's something incredibly therapeutic as well about writing fiction, where you give yourself or you unconscious the freedom to just figure stuff out at a very deep level so that none of it is explicit. But mm. writing it helped me make sense of that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, it does give you the license, I guess, to, to be creative, but also to figure out the world through your point of view and your messaging, doesn't it, in a way? It does. And shape yeah. narratives. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, when your world feels completely out of your control, mm. which is how I felt at that time, like mm. I lost all my bearings and just being able to shape a piece of art is... What yeah. were you reading? Do you remember what you were reading at the time? Oh, well, I was reading all the heavyweights. So like Mario Vargas, Yorsa, The Feast of the Goat and... John Updike's novel, The Coup, and of course, Jane Kutzia and um, Waiting for the Barbarians and, you know, all these quite uh, political allegories, I suppose, that were all reflecting on dictatorships and, um, you know, some of them had elements of um, allegory or, or fable. And so I was really trying to learn you know, from how they had done that. Um, mm. But it was pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Mm, it is, yeah. but it's just, it's so formative and, and it's who you are, I guess. So you've got this successful novel um, and what do you do next? So this was another bizarre twist to face where usually, you know, Penguin offices in different parts of the world operate totally independently. So it's not like if you get published in Penguin, South Africa, it's going to come out anywhere else. But through... The world is carved into rights. Exactly. (laughs) That only the industry understands. Right. And they don't share those books between the Penguin offices, right? It's not. In this case, bizarrely, the editor did. She sort of sold it to the US and the UK. I mean, for tiny amounts of money, but still the fact that it was going to come out in those countries sort of again just helped me feel like okay maybe this is something I need to really take seriously or sort of embrace this identity even though I'm feeling a bit awkward and illegitimate and um and so then I I ended up going back to New York and applying to do this PhD in social anthropology because I was unsure what to do um I thought I may as well become an academic like my parents and my sister and went back to New York for four years and then ended up dropping out of the PhD. Um, I was only halfway through at that point. It was an eight-year process. And that's when I moved back to Sydney. And when I moved to Sydney, I hadn't, I'd been struggling to write a second novel. I think and I why written. Sydney? So my parents had by then moved here. Right, okay. So they'd gotten a job here and... Um, I guess it still was the place that felt most like home, but mm. yeah, hadn't lived here for 15 years and came back and um, got a job working on climate change stuff and was really struggling with the second novel. Wrote, I think, three different novels in that time that I gave up on. And then eventually I wrote the stories and Only the Animals, but there was about an eight year gap between Bloodkin and, and Only the Animals coming out. So, a, t- a weird time. Um, mm. I'm glad I did all that. I sort of feel like I answered some of those questions that needed to be answered. But mm. I turn 40 next month, actually the same month that Life After Truth comes out. And, you know, the book is a lot about processing midlife and what a midlife crisis is. And we are, ta- we are taught as women to sort of dread it and that it only means bad things and things falling apart. But actually... I'm discovering and also the characters discover that it can mean a lot of different things to different people. And if you can embrace it as an intellectual 
crisis that can be, you know, resolved in very creative ways. I think there's a... a I, I agree with you that it is perceived as negative, but I think that that's largely what we've been fed for years because when we're calling it negative, we're only really basing it on appearance. Yeah. You know, the only narratives that we have around midlife are, you know, um, around anxiety, around aging, mm-hmm. and then ho- be- becoming crazy hormonal. Yeah, because we were not as beautiful as we were and not as beautiful as people expect us to be. But in actual fact, and I'm a lot older than you, I feel as though those years. I was speaking to a scientist the other day out of Harvard, uh, a guy called David Sinclair, who is doing research about anti Oh, I've written a whole profile of David Sinclair. Oh, you have? Yeah, well, exactly. you got a couple of years ago. I know, I, yes, I know a lot about him. Yeah. He's amazing, isn't he? Isn't he amazing? Yeah. Is an Australian. Anyway, for those that haven't listened to the podcast, the book is called Lifespan as well for David Sinclair. I had just the most amazing conversation with him. Like, I, I didn't know that. It didn't, didn't come up in my research notes. But anyway, that was only a couple of weeks ago. But if, if it was to be, I was just imagining after I spoke to him and I took the tablet and you reverse the ageing process. Now, it's not as simple as that. So listen to the <laughs> podcast or read the book. But I, do you know what age I was thinking that I would do? I would do 40, 40 plus. That's so interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I thought about my life and where I've been at what times I've been most happiest and, you know, uh, the word happy is kind of not a measure, but it is the most content, I guess. So what's yeah. made me happy was really the slowing down and the contentment and the ease yeah. that I was getting more and more comfortable with who I was, how I looked and what I did. You know? yeah. And very often we rely on what other people think. And I think at 40 I decided, no, this is what I think. Yeah. But that's not embraced and celebrated in the narratives about midlife, you know, for women. Absolutely not. I, I, I find, um, so one of the characters in Life After Truth is a professor of happiness at Harvard. And, you know, she is trying to figure out what this means and draw on, you know, some of her favourite philosophers. And one of the things that she says, I think she's channeling Kant, um, and she, it, the line is, you know, you can't live the second half of your life in the same way that you've lived the first and I just found, you know, that's wise. Those are wise words. And I find myself now thinking about that all the time. And I can feel these shifts happening. But it is kind of exciting. Like, I think if you've got your health and you've, you know, got a bit of security in your in your life so that you can, you know, be thinking about these other things of intellectual challenges and change and, you know, letting go of the false gods that you've worshipped Mm-hmm. in your youth and um, but we need women to be expressing that publicly so that it's not just the emptiness syndrome and the perimenopause and the menopause not and the sandwich generation I've heard that a lot about how women get sandwiched between teenage kids and elderly parents and it's just more other people's needs and so you do you start to dread that time but nobody talks about what's happening intellectually what's happening in a woman's mind and as we, for the first time, harness that confidence, what can we do with it? Mm. No, it's 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 really, really interesting topic. Okay, so talk to me about the book. And we've just touched on it a little bit there, Life After Truth. I'm just trying to think uh, how I felt when I read it. I felt empowered. But I was thinking about you and, you know, there's a lot of reflection. I mean, fiction is fiction, of course, but, you know, there's always... Um, moments of truth. Tell me firstly why this book 
and how you felt about writing it? This book has been the most joyous experience mm. for me to write. Um, it's a long story. I won't bore you with all of it, but um, oh, oh, you, you don't, you're not boring me at all. So <laughs> okay, good. Tell me. Oh, I guess the story starts where I went to my own 15-year college reunion, so in 2018, having not been back to America for 10 years. So I'd left, moved to Sydney, you know, hadn't had kids here, everything, hadn't gone back. And when you go back to your reunions so every class gets the chance to do this every five years and again it's an American tradition that Australians do not understand because it is like you go to your reunions if you you know have been to American college and it's a big deal it's a long weekend there's like three days you know you bring your family you and and at Harvard you actually have the opportunity to live for those three days to sleep in the same dormitories where you spent your Wow. So you get the chance to sleep in these same little narrow beds and they haven't changed and the same wooden furniture and, I mean, they smell the same. And so it is like you can time portal back into your, you know, previous life as an 18-year-old. But it's a very strange experience because, um, yeah, it just so the emotional roller coaster of that weekend was unbelievable and also I had barely traveled or gone anywhere because I'd been in the you know trenches of mother. how old were you so I was 38 so I didn't we we don't have the same thing here as you know and as you said but we I went to a school that did have reunions and I think it was every 10 years I had one anyway I didn't go I refused point blank to go to any of them <laughs> but when I was 40 I decided <laughs> I'm going to go because I had the confidence because I was comfortable with who I was because yeah. I thought I could work that room. But the funny thing that I <laughs> observed on that, um, that reunion was it was exactly like the schoolyard because it was high school and it was exactly like the school. Everybody was still sitting in those friendship groups that you had when you were 15, 16, yeah. 17. It was yeah. extraordinary. Yes. I mean, we are very, you know, mm. we're primal as humans. Like those yeah. bonds are, are hard to break even yeah. after, you know, time has passed. And mm. So tell me your story. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's a similar sort of thing, but it just, I guess as a writer and then as an anthropologist, I just felt like my senses were just on fire for that weekend. I mean, yeah. I hardly slept that weekend because I was just so overstimulated <laughs> and okay. so excited and so emotional and like, you know, just trying to soak it all up. And and for, for that to be happening right as you are sort of, you know, approaching 40 and to be thinking about youth and ambition and who you were. And then also I think for, for someone, you know, for people who've been at Harvard, it's kind of a cruel thing where you have, you told you have all this promise and potential. But what was so interesting is that 15 years on, there was none of the posturing anymore. Like people were really being honest about their lives, coming to terms with failure and loss and, almost a bit of anger of being like sold a, a false sense of what was possible, you know, in a life or, and career or what was meaningful or what they should pursue, what kinds of happiness they should pursue. And so people were just in this interesting space where there were some conversations, you know, where I hadn't seen these people since college and we weren't even, you know, close at college, but there was this openness where they would just tell me exactly what was going on in their lives and, 
So I just had this incredible experience there and I came back and was so jet lagged and couldn't sleep again. And one night I just, I don't know, it was maybe two in the morning and I just got up and I started writing and writers always say that the characters are totally invented, but actually that is truly the case um, in this book. But what I have channeled is the emotions. So the feeling, the feeling, yeah. And then of course the, the texture of being back on that campus and the events and the sort of, again, weird disjuncture between your youthful and your older self. Um, And this book just sort of came out. I've never experienced that before. You know, I've heard other writers speak about it where the characters start to tell you what they want to do next. And I've always been like, oh gosh, that must be nice. You know, I've always been like in the perspiration, not inspiration school of writing. And Mm. this book just kind of, just kind of came out. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't hard work and I had terrible insomnia through the whole time, which I think was linked to, I don't know, my brain just being too uh, stimulated, really. Um, Well, uh, I guess it would be on. I mean, because what I have discovered, I don't write myself, but what I've discovered with speaking to, you know, I think I'm up to 400 podcasts and speaking to writers is once that story's in your head, that's not going to go away until you put it down. Yes. And it, it, I, I believe, you know, like the Elizabeth Gilbert thing that like that inspiration will move on to someone else if you don't, mm-hmm. when the fire is lit, like, yeah, you got to see it through. But I hadn't ever really worked like that in the past. Um, I hadn't had the luxury, I suppose, to work like that in the past because it had been always stop, start, stop, start because of other jobs or then young kids or whatever. But I had a moment there where I could just kind of, and because I was mo- writing it often at night when I couldn't sleep, which then made the days whew, weird mm-hmm. But then I realized, I sort of, you know, when you're in that fire of creation, you can't think about the um, the crafting. You know, it's just, I think of the drafting as you just got to let it pour out. And then it starts to cool, right? So it's a bit like the lump of clay that you've done something mm-hmm. and then it's starting to harden. And that's the big shift for me when I have to stand back and start looking at the crafting process and it's hard because you've got to look at this lump that you've created and put a very different hat on like a very critical hat and that was when I was like holy shit this book is in a different voice and I don't know what this voice is but this voice is not the same voice as the other published books that I've written which are quite um Oh, I don't know, like high literary, I suppose you could say, or like because they're fables or allegories or, you know, writing within certain writing traditions. And this one, for the first time, I was looking at modern life and kind of contemporary manners. And it's meant to be a bit funny and, um, you know, kind of just, just a different voice, not a different genre though. But the thing is, as authors, we don't have a way really to signal that except through a name change. So one day, one night, well, again, when I couldn't sleep, I was like, oh, okay, the way I can signal that change of voice is I will publish this under a heteronym, not a pseudonym, a heteronym. And it was something I'd often thought about. There's this um, Portuguese poet called Fernando Pessoa who wrote a lot of poems. Up, he, I think he died in the 1930s. And he had about 12 different heteronyms that he wrote under. And they all wrote in different styles and voices. And he had, he had backstories for each of them. They used to write letters to the editors, like critiquing each other's poems and magazines. And, you know, and I'd always thought, wow, what a, what a fabulous way to actually express all the different voices that any writer has within them. Yeah. So I thought, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. And 
we actually, so I had this conversation with my agent who's based in London. I was like, I want to publish this under a heteronym. I came up with the heteronym. Anyway, I very quickly learned publishers really don't like that. Um, and they're very suspicious of that. And they immediately uh, were like, oh, you mean a pen name, like a pseudonym, which of course literally means a false name. And so there's mm. some seat built into it. And I got the weirdest responses of like, what are you trying to hide? Like, what is, what are you doing? Like, what's, what is this about? And I um, just quickly realized it was not going to happen. And so the book went under my bed and I was sort of like, okay, this is another one. Cause by that point there were about five others under my bed that I'd never published because they were also in this other voice that didn't fit in a high literary category, but mm. was not really commercial either. Like just different, different voice. Mm. Absolutely. Under the bed it went. But I think Elizabeth Gilbert sits in that spot. Yes, yes. Very versatile. Like you never quite know, you know, what she's going to write next, what form, style, voice. um, And all her books are quite different. I mean, you know, Pray Love was very different to the others. Absolutely, yeah. And then her early novels and then the late Mm. novel about the female scientist. You're right, actually. But I suppose she's got the benefit of, like, being super famous so people will follow her anywhere, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, it's a tough thing. Like, I think what, you know, what many people want actually from writers in this sort of setup and the commercial realities of it is they want the same voice in every book. You know, if they, if they love an author, they want. I'm going to argue with that. I'm going to argue with that. We have got such, you know, the better reading community and it's not me, so I'm not beating my own drum here, but I do read their comments. Every single night I read, you know, I, I don't have a life and I, I sit up and read their comments. But yeah. they are really good readers and they will recognise the difference. But what they're striving for all the time is good story. Yeah. They're yeah. not really that committed to genre. They're not really, they'll read anything because they're such great readers. But they will give authors a chance to yeah. hear them out. Yeah. I, I, I think but that people that you've created that community because it's pretty rare. Like they've created it. The readers created it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to find that really mm. because you are, you know, the genre distinctions are, are really mm. heavily policed even within bookstores, you know, they you are. a particular shelf and you've got to know what you're looking for. And so it's yeah. it's confusing to people if you are if you're blurring those boundaries and and particularly yeah. if you're not an author that you know is a, is well known so that people yeah. will follow you it's yeah. you kind of get lost in the in yeah. the changes and the you know but yeah it's it's something I'm really interested in and that's what we were saying earlier about being turning forty and having the confidence so I had an opportunity then a few months after I'd put it under my bed where Audible Australia was looking to do Audible Originals. So they were looking to actually do audiobooks that were um, published almost as if they were books. I suppose Audible was being like a publisher in that they were wanting to have content that was only going to exist as an audiobook form for a certain amount of time. And so I was like, you know what, what better way to signal a shift in voice than quite literally having it exist only in sound. It tests the market, yeah. Yeah, but also just it's such a different experience to text, you know, so it was a way to shift, to signal that shift in the authorial voice. So that's what happened. And so for a year it only was an audio book as an Audible original. And so they had an American actor 
you know, read it and narrate it. And so now it's coming out as the print book with Penguin, which is what it always was written to be. Like it was, I wrote it as a print book and then the audible things sort of happened by chance. But I feel comfortable now with the fact that I, it has had a slightly different, you know, entry into the world that signaling has been done. So I don't have to worry about this being a different voice or justified anymore. I can just actually celebrate it. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Uh, you should be celebrating it because it really is a wonderful book. We have to wind up now. <laughs> the time goes so quickly. I have enjoyed our conversation very much. You are a delight. You're a beautiful writer and it was just beautiful chatting to you and finding out more about you. So oh, thank you so much. Thank you for your lovely questions. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.